All right, well, good morning again. Hopefully you can hear me okay. Um, before we get started, I just wanted to congratulate you as a church. We are the seventh week into our preaching of many weeks of Hebrews. So we've made it seven weeks into our study of this book. And it's really our hope as a staff and as a session that this has been a blessing to you so far, just seven weeks in. Because um, as we keep talking about, and as James mentioned a moment ago, the theme of this book is, right, so yes, you've been paying attention for the past seven weeks, and you're going to keep hearing that each week that we're in this book. It's a pretty steady, pretty noticeable theme um, in Hebrews, which is, which is a blessing, and so we're going to continue in that this morning, and as we looked at last week, um, Hebrews is a book that's written to people like, not unlike us, people who suffer, people who deal with sin, who are tempted, people who just experience life in a fallen world, right? This side of eternity. And the writer is writing to people like that, people like us. And so the passage we're looking at this morning is really going to be building off of what we looked at last week. And so um, as we get started, I want to kind of pick up in verse 2, 17, and then read through um, chapter 3, verse 6. And so as we get ready to do that, um, would you just stand with me as we read God's word? We're going to start in Hebrews 2, 17, and go all the way to 3, 6. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your son, who is the head of your church. And I pray that this morning, as we open the scripture and as we look at it together, that you would open our hearts to receive more of Jesus. And we ask this in his name. Amen. All right, you can be seated. Well, how many of you have ever taken a trip to like a really grand, great, like awesome place like Yellowstone National Park or the Rocky Mountains or something like that? Has anyone ever done that? All right, awesome. And for some people, it could be one of those huge places like that, like a mountain range or an ocean. But for other people, it could even be just going to northern Wisconsin, right? Just sitting in the woods and being around a lake, you know, that could be your idea of greatness and grandeur. And that's perfectly, perfectly fine. Um, and, and so what, what kind of happens when you're taking in those beautiful scenes, when you're drawn into this environment that just seems so big and makes us and everything around us seem so small? Um, it's likely that maybe your breath's kind of taken away, right? Like maybe you really have to sit and process what you're looking at. Um, maybe 
it draws you to praise God and just thank him for the greatness of his creation. Um, but whatever that emotion is, likely you have some type of like response, right, to, to something so big and so great. And it's also likely that once you've experienced that, like whatever that is for you, once you go to something lesser, like if you are in the Atlantic Ocean, for instance, if you're staring at that and then you come back and there's a stream by your house, you know, that stream by your house, even though it's still beautiful, kind of pales in comparison to that great grand thing that you have seen. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, and can you relate to that? Like that, that feeling of you've experienced greatness and then it's hard to settle for something less. We all have at some, at some point, right? And, and those visions of that thing that has so much captivated our hearts and our minds um, tends to fade after a little while, right? Over time, the longer we're away from the mountain range or the longer we're away from the ocean, uh, the more forgetful we can be of the vividness of it, of the greatness of it that we've experienced. And so th- that vastness and that greatness uh, seems a lot smaller as time goes on, right? As, as we just kind of go about our life and just forget little pieces of, of what was so vivid and so rich at one point. Maybe you've even forgotten about that trip you took altogether. Maybe you don't remember a lot of details about it, short of seeing some pictures you know, here and there around your house. And in a similar way, if you and I are not careful, we can doubt or even forget the supreme greatness of Jesus Christ. As hard as that might be to believe um, or even accept sometimes, we, we can doubt or even forget the supreme greatness of Jesus. The reality of who Jesus is and what he's accomplished can cease to captivate our hearts in the same way that it once did. Maybe as a new Christian, if you think about when you first became a believer, how excited we are you know, to share our faith, to, excited to learn more about who God is, to dig into his word. <clears throat> and over time, that, that can fade, right? There kind of ebbs and flows to the Christian life, right? But sometimes we can find ourselves forgetting and doubting um, or at least diminishing the greatness of God through Jesus Christ. I mean, what do we have to do to prevent that? And we're going to talk about that a little bit this morning, but we have to be reminded of of those things. You have to be reminded of his greatness, reminded of the truth of who he is, which you you really see woven throughout the thread of Hebrews as the writer is doing that. He's, He's encouraging the people he's writing to, these Jewish believers to not forget who Jesus is, not forget that he's, he's better, that he's greater, that he's more supreme than anything else. And for that to fuel their obedience, but also to fuel their joy as they trudge through a broken world, right? And live as pilgrims and exiles, this side of heaven. And so verses one through six that we're going to look at this morning are a reminder as well that Hebrews um, is all about the greatness of Jesus. And so if you're taking notes, our outline's pretty simple this morning. I'm sorry it's not in the worship guide. I didn't send it in in time <laughs> to do that. Um, but it, it's very simple. So the main idea is going to be that all that matters in this life or the next is Jesus Christ. So look to and live for him. So I'll say that again. All that matters in this life or the next is Jesus Christ. So look to and live for him. And we're able to do that in a few different ways. And so three, three ways that we can do that are to consider Christ's faithfulness in verses one and two, to contemplate Christ's glory in verses three and four, and to have confidence in Christ's rule and reign, which we'll look at in verses five through six. And so to start, our first point, consider Christ's faithfulness, looking at the very beginning 
of the passage. So immediately, we see the importance of context when we're looking at this chapter, right? This isn't an isolated chapter that's kind of set apart from the rest of Hebrews. It's very much a continuation of what he just wrote, what the writer just wrote in chapter two, which is a continuation of what he wrote in chapter one and so on. So you kind of get, get the idea. That's the beauty of the epistles is, you know, it's easy to track with, right? You can really track with the line of thought of the writer. And, and that's true here as well. And so picking up right where we left off last week in chapter two, the writer is addressing the Hebrews as the Hebrew Christians, Jewish Christians he's writing to as holy brothers, right? Those who are part of the covenant people of God, those who share in the heavenly calling, he says. This isn't an abnormal way to greet a group of Christians, is it? It's pretty, pretty normal. This is pretty standard greeting for, for greeting the church, right? And so even while that's not abnormal, I, I would like to emphasize that it is a significant way to greet them. So think about your own life, especially when you were younger or if you're a kid right, right now. Think about when a parent has been trying to get your attention, maybe for like quite some time, and they can't seem to do it. And they, maybe they call your name once, twice, or three times, and you still don't come. So what usually follows that third time? A loud calling of your full name, right? Your first, middle, and last name, like your whole name, they're calling you, right? And that's how they're addressing you when something is really important, when you really need to listen, and you really need to come and hear what's going to be said. And so hopefully, when we hear that or have heard that in our life, um, that we've, we have stopped, we have listened, and we have turned from whatever we were doing and gone to see what, what was up with, with our parents, what they needed. Um, and this is a similar thing that's happening in, in this passage. So if you look, the use of holy brothers acts the exact same way. It's kind of that full name um, calling of someone to get their attention. Back in 2.11 and 2.17, God's people are referred to as brothers, but it's only here that they're referred to as holy brothers. And so what's the difference? What, what's happened between those verses and chapter 3? Well, I think one of the, the major things that is discussed in between chapter 2 and 3 here is this, that Jesus became a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people in verse 217. So propitiation has happened, right? A big thing has happened. Jesus has acted and brought God's people back to God. He's secured atonement for them. This is the work of, of redemption, right? That we're seeing play out. And God's people have been purchased. And so the people have got the people of God have been made clean through what Jesus has done. And since they've been redeemed, the writer is kind of showing that and using their full name, as it were, right? To just point out the fact that not only are you brothers, but you're, you're holy brothers. You're purchased by God. You're part of God's family, his covenant people. And so this is an important greeting so that they won't forget who they are. This is a reminder also that they're pilgrims and exiles in this world, right? They're a holy people. <clears throat> Going back here, holy brothers who share in a heavenly calling, right? They're not sharing in an earthly calling. They're not fulfilling an earthly calling, right? This is something that goes beyond the temporal, what they can see. And so this is a reminder. They're pilgrims and they're exiles in this world. They're on their way to something better, to someone better, where Jesus is. And no doubt, we as pilgrims today, many years removed from the time this letter was written, you know, we can relate to this, right? We 
We're called to something beyond what we can see, what's beyond everything around us. If anything, that's more and more apparent as the days go on, right? How, how much this isn't our home. It's not our final resting place. And that's something to be thankful for, right? And so the, the writer just continues on here. He doesn't waste any words. And he uses specific reminders like this to introduce what we're going to see next. He says, because you are God's chosen redeemed people, as James said, consider Jesus. So the Greek word used here for consider in a kind of a basic layman's terms definition just means to focus one's vision and attention on. So you're focusing your vision and your attention on. You're using multiple senses, right? So the writer is saying more than just give Jesus a thought, just think of, think of him in the way you would think of maybe like a grandparent, you know, that brings a smile to your face. Like he's not saying just do that, right? There's something deeper going on here more profound. Instead, he's saying, be captivated by Jesus completely. Fix your your vision and your attention on him. Let him captivate your thoughts. Have you ever been traveling and needed to use a map in order to get where you're going? I mean, everyone has, right? But even though we've been traveling and needed that, there have been times when we come to kind of that fork in the road, like that key moment when we need to either pull out our phone for directions or just keep going that you know, we have to make a choice, right? Like, do you look up the directions to get to your destination or do you just kind of feel things out? And so the writer of Hebrews is saying to his audience, you know, don't just feel things out in this life as you're following the Lord, as you are living as a pilgrim in exile in a world that's hostile to the things of God. Don't just try to feel that out and navigate your way, you know, on your way to heaven, so to speak. He's saying, don't do that. He's saying, don't just vaguely remember Jesus. Don't just look at him occasionally. Don't just pick different parts of him to care about. But focus on all that he is and all that he has done. This is, after all, the way for pilgrims and exiles to get safely home, right? To get where we're going um, to the presence of God one day for eternity. And similar to the people using a map, right? That's how you get safely to your destination. You have to specifically look to where you're specifically going and you can't just kind of grope in the dark to get there. I mean, and that's really important. And I think for us, there's a lot that can be said there as believers, as holy brothers, right? As a holy people, our heavenly calling isn't a blind calling, right? There, there's depth to the Christian life. There are things that we need to be concerning ourselves with. We need to know as much about Jesus as we can. We need to be around Jesus and his people as much as we can um, in order to not forget his greatness. And so what the writer here is saying to these Jewish Christians is the same thing that we need to hear in the 21st century. It's, it's to persevere, to keep going, to not give up the faith, right? And we'll see that throughout Hebrews um, over and over again. There'll be calls to not forget, to not neglect this great salvation that we have been given. Um, to keep pressing on and, and perseverance and faith. And so when our lives, even though they're full of challenges, even though our hearts are so easily tempted and drawn to other things, um, even though those things are true, when they're built in the real, on the reality of who Jesus is and the reality that he's all that matters, we have what we need right, to look past the temporal towards the greatness of God and towards eternity. And so the writer is saying this, right? He's saying Jesus is all that matters, but why is it that he's all that matters? 
Who is he, for starters? And I think this is just helpful to take another look at. Um, He says that he is the apostle and the high priest of our confession. Put another way, this is to say that Jesus is the one who has come and taught us and shown us what God is like as an apostle, right? As apostle, he's, he's been a messenger. He's shown what the Father is like through his earthly ministry. And he's also come as a high priest to bring us back to God through his redemptive work, right? So it's kind of that dual nature of, of Jesus being fully God and fully man. You kind of see that teased out a bit here. The language of Jesus as our high priest is something that would not be unfamiliar to Jewish Christians, right? They, they understood the priesthood. They under, understood how the high priest role functioned. And that's also something that we can, can think a little bit better about. I think after all the time that we've spent earlier this year in the summer and as we've been in Hebrews on the threefold office of Christ, right, which we talked about in our summer conversations, and now as we've been in this book, right, there's, there's so much talk of Jesus being our high priest. <clears throat> and so there, that's one parallel, right? That, that is many, many Old Testament, one of many Old Testament parallels that we're going to see throughout the book of Hebrews. So Jesus was faithful to him who appointed him, right? God, that's who appointed him. He was faithful to God. And that would have been important to show a Jewish Christian audience, right? Just a reminder that he was a high priest who faithfully fulfilled his high priestly role. The writer also says that Moses was faithful in all God's house to mediate the covenant between the Lord and Israel, right? So Jesus and Moses are both shown here with some similarities. It's kind of at the beginning of the the chapter here, just showing how the two are alike, right? Both men were appointed by God for specific tasks and purposes. And Moses was to mediate the covenant between God and his people in the Old Testament, which we, we see throughout the early part of the Old Testament. And now we see here Jesus is faithful in all God's house to usher in a new covenant, right? Through the pouring out of his own blood, which he even says himself in places like Matthew 26. This is the new covenant and my blood. Both men are ones through whom God speaks in key ways, right? Throughout redemptive history. They're they're key figures in the redemptive story of what's going on in the Bible, but also the redemptive story of what's happening outside the Bible, right? In real life, in real time, Moses and Jesus are key figures for us. And as the opening of Hebrews 1 tells us, at the end of the day, to equate both Moses and Jesus would be to kind of compare apples to oranges, right? Christ's faithfulness is not the same as Moses' faithfulness, which we'll look at in a moment. His faithfulness to the Father is unique. And I think it's worth mentioning that if you're a Christian here today, in, in which we kind of already talked about a moment ago, but if you're here and you're a believer, if you have been redeemed and you have put your faith and your trust in Christ, you're not called to blindly follow the good teachings of a moral person, right? It, it wasn't just that Jesus was faithful to God and we should be faithful to God. No, if you belong to Christ, you are called to always be considering with your heart and your mind, right? A holistic, holistic way of thinking, not just with your emotions, but with your intellect, who Jesus is and what he has done and what that means for you and what that means for me. And so he is the faithful apostle who has shown us what God's like. He has literally shown us what God is like through his earthly ministry, right? Physically shown us. But he's also been the faithful high priest who's atoned for our sins so that we could be with the Father. 
So let us consider the fullness of, God's, of Christ's faithfulness as we, as we think through what that looks like to behold him as greater. We have to behold the fullness of him to kind of retain that. that. But also, as we are considering his faithfulness, let's also contemplate Christ's glory. So moving into verses three and four. So my family and I live just north of here in Nina, if you didn't know that. I'm um, about a mile from our house. There's another house an older one that's been there for a long time, where a man named George Edwin Bergstrom grew up. So I don't know if the name rings any bells for anyone who might be from the area, but George was a very well-known architect after he left Nina. He went to MIT, became a famous architect on the West Coast, designed a lot of important buildings in the early to mid part of the 20th century. I mean, one of the buildings of all the ones he designed, the most important one that, that he designed was the 4 million square foot office building in Washington, D.C. called the Pentagon. And so it's no doubt an impressive building, right? It's famous the world over. People know it. They recognize it. Um, it's an important building for us as a nation with all the armed forces and intelligence offices that are there. And so it's no doubt important. It's, it's cool to look at. I'm sure it's cool to go inside. And it's a well-known piece of architecture. But in Nina, to this day, George Edwin Bergstrom is still proudly touted as the man who designed the Pentagon. So it's not so much about the building as it is the man who designed it, right? It's a source of, source of pride there. So his name is equated with greatness. The house that he designed like, owes its existence to him, right? And all of his efforts and his intellect. <clears throat> and in a similar way, as we think about how Jesus is better in our study of Hebrews, the writer tells us here in verse 3, that Jesus has been counted of more glory than Moses. But what is his reasoning for that more glory being given? And he says, because Jesus is the builder of God's house. God's people have been redeemed. And the New Testament church has been established because of what Jesus has done. But even more than that, we're going back even, even further, right? He, he has done that. He's built a, a house in the present. But even from eternity past, before the incarnation, before he ever came to the earth as a man, the Father had, has executed everything he's ever done. His, his perfect will has been executed through the Son, Jesus. And so look with me again a little bit further back at Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. I'm just going to read this quickly, and if you don't have time to turn back there, that's okay. Just make a note. But Hebrews 1, 1 through 4 says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So we think a lot when we think about Jesus of what he did in his life, his ministry, death, burial, and resurrection, right? But sometimes we can overemphasize what he did on earth and deemphasize what he's always been doing, right? He's always been holding the universe together. He's always been fulfilling the Father's perfect will. He's always been doing that. He's always been at work for whatever the Father has planned to do. <clears throat> He upholds the universe by the word of his power, by speaking. And we see that physically kind of play out, right, in his ministry as he speaks and things happen. 
that reflect what God's like. And this is not Moses we're talking about here. Moses never did things quite like this, right? Moses doesn't hold the universe together. Jesus does. Someone much greater than Moses does. So in the union of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, they, before the foundations of the world, designed a grand plan of redemption, right? Which was carried out through the Son. Moses was faithful in all God's house, but Jesus is the builder of God's house. So hopefully this helps us kind of see just how how much depth there is to the person of Christ, who he he is, right? We could could spend hours and hours and years and years just talking about that. But Jesus is the builder of God's house. He's the chief cornerstone, as Ephesians 2 says, of the house. And the builder gets more honor than the building itself. And why is that? Well, thankfully and helpfully, the writer answers that for us in verse four. He says, the builder of all things is God. And so not only... Has Jesus been doing all these things and accomplishing all these things? He's also God. And Moses is not God. As God's covenant people, we owe our very existence to him, to all that Jesus is and all he has done. So how could we look and think of any aspect of him if we're thinking of him fully and not be changed by that, not be changed by the glory that is is present there? As we come and we worship on Sundays, and we're really, if we're really thinking about that, right, with our, with our hearts, with our minds, like the, if the fullness of us is thinking about the fullness of him, how can we not be changed by, by who he is? He's unlike anyone else. He's, he's more glorious than anyone else. And that a response is, is required of someone like that, right, on our part, right? If we are experiencing someone who is not just greater, but the greatest, we owe the great one a response, which we'll talk about in a moment. Do you see how Jesus is the key to persevering in the faith? Maybe just as we're talking about these things, because he's the faithful, the glorious one, right? Do we see how that will help us as we focus our our gaze on him, how that will help us to persevere in this life and how it might've helped the audience of this letter to persevere as they were hearing it? As we consider Christ's faithfulness and we contemplate his glory, we should be moved to action through submission and obedience to him which leads us to the third point, having confidence in Christ and his rule and reign, which we see primarily in verses five and six. So the writer of Hebrews continues to build on this argument that Jesus is the greatest one of all. The distinctions that he's making are continuing between Moses and Jesus as he speaks of Moses as faithful in God's house as a servant. This is going to be important. So he speaks of Moses as, as being faithful in God's house as a servant, but he speaks of Jesus as being faithful over God's house as a son. So we see how those things are different. That's not the same type of faithfulness again. So like the previous analogy he was using with the builder of a house, there's a clear superiority here that we see that's given to Jesus over Moses. Everything Moses did was to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, right? Moses was pointing to something after himself that wasn't there yet, right? A reality that had not been presented. And so looking forward to God's fulfillment of his covenant promises and people was what he was doing and what he was proclaiming to to Israel. And here we see Jesus, the son, who is the word made flesh, the bodily fulfillment of those, those promises, right? It doesn't say that Jesus is pointing to something after. The way that this is written is, is almost saying Jesus is the something after. He is the something Moses was pointing to. 
And so as such, as superior, right, he's not in God's house. He's, he's over God's house because he's God's son. And so um, he is the one, because of that, that, that we should pledge our allegiances to and pay attention to and submit our lives to. Um, and kind of to illustrate that, I wanted to share with you what my favorite TV show of all time is. The best show I think ever written. You can disagree, but it's called The West Wing. And it's about a fictional president and a fictional like, White House staff. Um, and, and like all fictional things, it's clearly not real, right? This is like super moral, super successful um, group of people who really care about, about the people they're serving. So it sounds a little different maybe than some modern politicians could, but it's, it's, it's one of the best shows. The writing is so rich and it's, it's about, so much of it is about how the staff supports the president. So everything that these people do supports the president's agenda, supports the president's messaging, keeps the president from looking bad, right? And so the most public face of, of that in the show and really in real life too is the press secretary, right? That's the person that's out in front of reporters every day. They're giving updates. They're the ones who are kind of the daily mouthpiece of the president and his administration. They're the, the public face. And so the press secretary's job is to deliver the right message, um, but the press secretary is not the president, right? And in a similar way, we kind of see that play out with Moses. Moses was a mouthpiece of God, but he was not God. And Jesus was the mouth of God. And those are different distinctions, and I think important ones for us as we think about this and the ways that Jesus is superior. And so, again, the press secretary in the, in the, in the TV show is not the president. When the president enters a room, anytime in the show, um, whether or not this happens in real life, I don't know, but anytime he walks into a room, all the cameras light up and all the people stand up and, and cheer and they're excited. And if they don't cheer and shout excitement, they at least stand respectfully for the man as he walks in. And so all this to say there's one episode of the show where the press, the press secretary is speaking and as she's speaking, she introduces the president who is about to walk in. And so all these people in front of her are seated. The president walks in and they all stand up, all except for one person. And so the President Bartlett, the fictional uh, guy in, in the show, he starts to give his speech. He starts to share whatever his message is that he's sharing. And he keeps getting distracted because there's this one person over here out of his line of vision that's just sitting down when everyone else is standing and paying attention to him. And so he, he tries to go on a little bit longer, but eventually winds up stopping and, and mid-speech mid and addresses this person in the midst of the crowd. And he just points out, not so gently, that in a room where the President of the United States stands, no one sits down. And so it's kind of a powerful moment where he's putting this person in their place, where you kind of feel the weight of the presidency, even though it's a fictional one, right? It really conveys power and authority and the need for someone like a, a regular person to submit to that authority, right? And so in our response to Jesus, when we think of him, when we think of the fullness of who he is, we think not just with our emotions about what he's done, um, but we think with, with our minds about who he who really is as the second person of the Trinity, right? As God's son, who's always been and always will be, is our response one of adoration and excitement and attention and praise and allegiance, right? Is that how we respond to him? Or um, is it something else? Is it something less than that? 
And, and that's true for us, not only here in the congregation as we gather corporately, right? This should not only be our response when we're together, but this type of response to this type of great one should be our response in private when no one else is around. When we're tempted to, to sin and to walk away from him, as we shift our focus, as we consider Jesus, is that our, our response? Is it one of praise and allegiance where everything else pales in comparison? to him. If you're here today and you're a Christian, the reality of Jesus as a better mediator than Moses should evoke a powerful response in your heart, right? It it should, it should do something. Something should be moving there right now. When we think about that, you can and should be, you and I both should be becoming more and more faithful and more and more equipped as we think about Jesus, as we consider him, all of him, We should be becoming more and more equipped to endure life in a world that is scarred by sin as we focus our complete attention on who Christ is and what he's done to redeem us from utter destruction, right? Because the tricky thing about forgetfulness is if we are looking at just pieces and fragments of Jesus or even not looking at Jesus at all, if our, if our memories of who he is and his greatness and his glory are fading in our hearts, other things are going to seem more appealing that are just going to lead us to destruction, Right? The wages of sin are death. We'll we'll go nowhere fast if we take our eyes off Christ. And so let this be our confidence. If you're a believer here today, don't forget that. Christ is our confidence. He's bought us with his blood. He's willing to bring us safely to the eternal presence of the Father one day. He's he's not leaving us to to grope around blindly in the dark right now. He's he's given us himself to help us um, on our way, on our pilgrim journey to be with him. And if you're here today and maybe can relate more to the one who might be sitting when the president walks in that I was talking about, if you're not a believer, if you, if you don't have a relationship with Christ, let me encourage you. And let me say again what I said at the beginning. All that matters in this life or in the next life is Jesus. He's the perfect son of God who's been completely faithful as an apostle and high priest to proclaim the glorious beauty of God and purchase people for his glory. There's no one like him, which we get a snapshot of just in these few verses, just a glimpse of that. Jesus has established God's covenant people, and he secured that people through his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. Where the author of Hebrews remind us, he is now seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, ruling and reigning in power until one day, all those who belong to him will be with him. So if you are here, you don't know Jesus my encouragement to you would just be to trust him and to live for him in light of who he is. As we go from here and we go back into the craziness and the chaos of our daily lives, whether that's out in the world or whether that's even just in our own hearts and our our too often tempted hearts, right? Please remember, if you don't remember anything else from this morning, just please remember all that matters is Jesus. All that matters is Christ. And as you are remembering that, as you're, dwelling on him and how great he is and how beautiful and wonderful he is and superior he is to all other things. You're never going to regret a single moment spent for him. You're never going to regret saying no to something lesser, right? A lesser love. So, so do that focus on him, look to him and live for him. Consider his faithfulness as the writer of Hebrews encourages us, contemplate his glory 
as one who is unlike Moses, who's greater than Moses, who's the son of God and God himself, and have confidence in his rule and reign as we, as we live out our lives practically, right? These, there are practical implications to, to this. It's not just information. This is for us to go out and implement in our daily life, in our families, in our homes, even in our workplaces. And so let us do that today, to go out confidently, clinging to our hope. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the greatness of Christ. And we pray this morning that you would just continue to make that a reality in our lives, that we would dwell on that greatness, that we would be changed by that greatness and be made more and more like him as we journey through the brokenness of this world until we get to eternity with you. Lord, help us to trust you as a church. Help us to trust you as individuals and families. Help us to trust you now in our worship. May it reflect the greatness and beauty of who you are. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.